Well, hello. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is great to see each one of you. And it's great to be able to be together as we engage with God this morning. Um, being that the case, being us in this space, will you please uh, join me as I pray? Dear God, I give you great thanks for this day and your presence in our lives. I pray that from uh, a nearness that we're told we can't measure from a closeness uh, we have in our relationship with you, uh, that you would speak to us, you would open our hearts and minds to hear from you, and that we both individually and collectively would hear what it is you have for us today. Um, yeah, God, so, so I pray that in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we start, uh, I want to let you know about there's a sheet of paper in your bulletin. It's a tall sheet, and it says Lent at the top of it. got some blank space. Um, as, as we get started, what I would like you to do is write down two questions on that uh, piece of paper that I, I'll explain more in a second. The first question is, who is God? And the second question is, who am I? Not who am I, but who are you? Not, but you know what I mean. So, uh, and what I would like you to do is, as we go through our time together this morning, anything you hear or think as we're going that informs you, oh, this is something about God, write it down. Or this is something about who, who, who I am, then write it down. And just fill that out as, as we go. Um, and then at the end, I'm going to ask if some people would be willing to share some of the things that they wrote. Um, that, would be, that would be great. So just have that uh, going. Uh, we're deep into the season of Lent, this time where we enter into the wilderness with Jesus. There was this point in Jesus' life where he is led by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness. And while he is there, he is tempted by the devil, tempted to forget who he was, tempted to forget what he was sent to do, and tempted to turn from God and to follow someone else. And what we find is that in this space, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Jesus does something different. Even though he finds himself in the middle of a wilderness where he's alone, hungry, and faced with an enemy who uses Scripture against him, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, leaned into who he was, leaned into who God was. He remembered what was true about himself and what was true about God and was able to not only get through that time in the wilderness, but to rely on the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Holy Spirit led him out of that time in the wilderness and out of that into the next few years of his life and through that into the moment where he was going to die on the cross and through that into the moment where he was resurrected three days later. And so we take this time and we remember in the season of Lent Jesus' time in the wilderness that really led him to these other things. Now, some of us entered into this season of Lent feeling like we could relate to Jesus when he's in the wilderness. Our lives feel like they're kind of spinning. We feel off balance. A lot of the things that we go to and try to lean on for support aren't there, aren't giving us support. And some of those things even feel like they might be turning against us, and maybe they are. Some of us came into this season feeling great, like we're in a sweet spot. Everything is clicking and moving smoothly and fluidly. But wherever we may find ourselves, this time of Lent is designed and set up to remind us about this time that Jesus had and to remind us of, of what it means to walk faithfully with God in the wilderness. How do we remain true to who we are in Christ when we are in this untamed and wild place? The word Lent means springtime, and one of the 
phrases we have used uh, for the past several weeks to describe it is that it's the church's springtime and that out of sin's winter, a spirit-empowered and transformed people will emerge. And so it's our intent during Lent to enter into an intentional time of growth, an intentional time of seeking God and leaning into Him. Now, you may already have an intentional time with God, and that's fantastic. But what I find is during Lent, there's, there's a way we go about things during Lent that gets at some different things that I find I normally go to in my normal experience with God. Some things that maybe I don't want to get at or some things that I forget about. And so during this time, we try to get at some different things. The season, what we've been doing is using what we call the lectionary to sort of guide our Sunday times. And a lectionary is uh, it's a gathering of pieces of literature that are meant to be read on a specific time to remind us of specific things. Uh, it's very popular in Christianity and in Judaism. Um, the Christian lectionary that we're using, this gathering of texts that is read at certain times during the year, has been formed over many years. Um, and it was actually going on in the early church, and it was going on stuff we read in the Old Testament, and it's actually been going on in ancient cultures for a long time, even before things could be written. We know of times where people would tell stories at certain times of the year to remind them of places they've been, where, where's, where's their culture been, where's their people been, where's their family been, and it takes them back to those moments and those places, and so we're practicing that. And what I have found is that it's an incredibly rich Experience, right? These scriptures, I think sometimes we think, oh, they're kind of haphazardly thrown together, but the work that went into it and how they were so wonderfully woven together, uh, I think has revealed some amazing things to us about God and our walk with Him. The format we've been using has an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel reading, and an epistle. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at three out of those four texts, but on that uh, piece of paper I drew your attention to earlier. We have the three texts we're looking at today, and then the, the passage from the Gospel of Luke, I believe, is referenced. And the intent with that is for you to take that, and as you go through your week, to go and read that story, and then add it into what, uh, what you hear this morning. Uh, the first passage that we're going to look at is in Joshua 5, 9 through 12. Again, it's on that sheet, but it'll also be up on the screen behind me where you can follow along. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. Now, this is a critical moment in Israel's history. They have just come through the Jordan River where God stopped up all the waters of the river and, and, and sort of parted it a little bit like the Red Sea. And Israel went through that to enter into the promised land. And it's important also because God had promised them this, this area that they could go into. And he promised it way back to Abraham that there's going to be a place where your people can go and live and be fruitful and enjoy life with me. And so they've been waiting to get to this place for a long time. And even when God brought them out of Egypt and it seemed like, okay, now we're going to get to the promised land, something happened and God had to tell a group of them, kind of their current group of leaders, you know what, you guys don't get to go. In fact, it's going to be 40 years of wandering and then your descendants are going to go into the promised land. 
Well, that's the point we're at. That 40 years has now passed. Most of that generation has passed, and two of them um, get to go in. Um, Joshua and Caleb, they get to go in for some reason. Um, uh, it's mostly because they did what God asked them to do, and everyone else didn't. Uh, that happens sometimes. Uh, but so the previous generation has passed. Uh, Joshua and Caleb get to go in, and now their children are going to the promised land. As they do, uh, they find a place to celebrate Passover. And Passover is uh, a time where Israel would celebrate that God did not bring judgment upon them when he was bringing judgment on the nation of Egypt. And he had told them, uh, I'm going to come and judge, and so what I need you to do is to kill a lamb, and then I need you to paint with its blood on your doorpost. And that way I will know not to bring judgment on that house. And so they call it Passover because God would pass over those houses. But in doing so, what they do is they remember God. They remember who He is and what He's done. They remember who they are. And so something is happening because what God says when they do that is now I'm going to take this reproach of Egypt and other versions translate it, I am rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt and it is gone from you. You are free from it. Something's happening, something new, full of life and growth. And what we find is when we remember God and what He's done, and let that inform how we live, things happen. Big things, little things, in-between things, all kinds of things. But things happen. And here we see Israel move into this promised land. Transformation happens. Something has changed. This old shame, this old reproach of Egypt is gone, and they can now move on. The other big thing that's interesting about this is they no longer eat manna, which is what God used to sustain them for the 40 years where they were wandering. It's a sign to them that that time is done. This new time has begun. The psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 32, and it reads like this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Now, this is one of my favorite psalms. There's this incredibly rich imagery concerning the transformation that takes place when we remember who God is and we remember who we are. Last week, Brian talked about the power and the necessity of naming the things that we have done, good and bad, taking responsibility for our lives and bringing those lives into the light, into God's presence so that we and deal with the things that we need to. And this psalm is about that. The one who is forgiven is blessed. That means they're in a right relationship. That's the blessing that is being spoken of here. It's 
Blessed versus bones wasting away. Blessed versus groaning all day long. Blessed instead of God's hand heavy upon us, sapping all of our strength. And blessed versus guilt. And all of it hinges on being honest with God. Remembering who God is. Remembering who we are. And this thing of confessing our transgressions to God. And there's something about me that thinks, oh, that's fantastic because confessing my transgressions to God feels like it should be so easy, but when I think about doing it, it feels so very difficult. I don't like to do it. I don't like to think about those things. I don't like to dwell on those things. I feel like for people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and following Jesus, it should be easy to say, yeah, I did that. Let's move on. Let's get going. Or if I need to deal with it, let's deal with it, but let's keep growing and learning. I think so often we are preoccupied and at times obsessed with the sin with the mistake, not the confessing and moving on. I think sometimes we become more afraid of being wrong than we are of learning and growing and moving forward. When I was doing campus ministry at the University of Washington, there was a student in our group, fantastic guy, really eager to grow, hungry for God and everything that God had for him, and and, and really just going after it. Um, And he was really excited about evangelism. He wanted to share his faith with everybody he knew. And as he did so, he, he had this understanding that, wow, God speaks through me. God gives me words to say. And so every conversation I have could be the one where someone's heart becomes open and they will receive God. Like Every word I say could be that word. Maybe they don't receive God. Maybe they'll move a step closer at the very least. And what he noticed happening was that when he talked to people, nothing seemed to happen sometimes. And he became very fearful all of a sudden of, well, what if I'm not saying the right words? What if I'm not listening to God? What if I'm not very good at this? What if I can't do this? And so for a short time, about a month, he stopped talking to people. Not just people who he's interested in sharing his faith with, but he was like, for anyone, if I say the wrong thing, what's it going to do to their lives? What if I don't say the thing? And he became more fearful of making a mistake than engaging with people and the potential to move forward. And we may not have an instance where it's so clear as that, but I think a lot of us, we struggle with this. I think the other thing is if we often see ourselves through this lens where we're the ones who are making mistakes and we're not going to be doing it right, I think we also categorize other people that way. Instead, we should be walking with each other. Brian last week phrased it so beautifully. We should be carrying each other. Hey, you made a mistake? I've made mistakes too. I know exactly what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be in the wilderness, this place we've talked about, to be reaching for the things that I've often put my trust in and have often given me some sense of stability. And I know what it feels like to be doing that, and they're not coming through. And I know what it feels like to be reaching for those things, and they're actually working against me. But let's deal with that. Let's walk together. Let's carry each other and keep moving. And these two passages we've read, the thing that it talks about is this transformation that takes place. And in the wilderness, where we need to lean into Jesus, this transformation can still take place. We can still grow. It may not feel like growth. It may be really difficult. It may feel really challenging. It may feel impossible or overwhelming. 
Have you ever felt like that? Have you had those moments? And if you have, can you remember a time where someone else stepped in and helped? Or maybe if they weren't there immediately, you reached out and there was someone present. I recently had a moment in my own work career, my vocational career, where I had to ask help in a way that I never have before. There have been times where I've had to say, no, I can't do that because it doesn't fit my schedule, or maybe I have to travel and it's too far to go do that, or maybe there was just a skill set that I hadn't learned yet, and oh, I can do that, but it's going to take time for me to learn how to use this software or something where there was some maybe hindrance, but this was different. This was, there was something in me that, that wasn't working. There was a, a, a sticking spot. It's like I was hitting a wall, and no matter what I tried, it seemed to slow it down. It seemed to make it even harder and more difficult. And finally, I had to ask for help and just say, for whatever reason, I can't do this. I'm spinning, and I need some help. Thankfully, help was there. And now things have been moving in a better direction, but we need to carry each other. And that leads us to the last passage I want to look at today. So we've talked about transformation. A transformation happens when we become close to God, when we uh, confess our transgressions, when we're honest, we remember Him, we remember who we are. And so now we get to this 2 Corinthians passage, which is chapter 5, 16 through 21. And it reads like this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and, gives, uh, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this passage gets at this reality that those who have encountered Jesus experience something and are changed. A transformation takes place. We're not the same. The old has gone. The new has come. And it's not just that we're different from the person we used to be. It's that we're different from the culture of the world. We don't operate the way the world does. Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from a human point of view or a worldly point of view. This word here that's translated either worldly or human is this Greek word, sarks. And what it means is flesh, but it means Flesh that's the soft substance of the living body, which covers the bones and is permeated with blood for both man and beast. And so when we read this, what we're saying is we don't view people as pieces of flesh, just things that we can use to perform for us or to manipulate. If you remember back to the sermon a little while ago on the golden calf where Israel is wanting to build an idol to God, to Yahweh, but their relationship with God has become confusing because they picked Moses to be their mediator. Moses went up on the mountain for 40 days and hasn't come back. So they're feeling stressed and they say, okay, we like this idea of being in a relationship with God. You seem pretty powerful, but we need a little more control over this. So let's build an idol, one that we can control. We can pick it up and move it. We can see it. We can shape it. But we have more control over this because this relationship with you seems off. And what God says is you don't get to do that. 
I don't need nor do I desire there to be a piece of wood or gold to be a stand-in for me. I am the living God. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to deal with you. In, in Isaiah, there's a passage that said, God says, come and sit at the table and reason with me. God wants to figure it out with us. And when God did send a mediator, he sent a person. He sent Jesus, not an idol. And just like that, we don't view people as an object. We don't view people as just something walking around. We are the children of God. We are part of his creation. We are his image bearers. We are more than just objects to be used. A few years ago, a young pastor named Rob Bell uh, wrote a book called Love Wins that caused quite a stir amongst Christians and caused a lot of people to question not just Rob Bell's theology, but whether or not he was really a Christian. Now, up until this point, Rob Bell was the young, hip pastor that was going to be able to connect to this generation. He did cool video series. His sermons were thoughtful and caused people to think. And he was charismatic, but not necessarily in the loud, kind of raucous way. He was something different, and lots of people really, really liked him until he wrote this book. And in an interview I heard, two people were uh, asking him questions, and one of the people said, you know, I think the, one of the problems I've had, he's speaking to Rob Bell, one of the problems that, that I've had and a lot of us have had is that we thought you were the guy. We thought you were one of us, and you were going to be on this team with us, and you were going to lead Christianity to this new place of relevance and being able to relate and connect with people who didn't follow Jesus. And so when that turned out to be false, it was just hard for us because you're not that guy. And I remember hearing this and feeling like, oh, wait a minute. So we just wanted to use Rob Bell, right? We thought he was going to be hip and cool, and he was going to do all this work for us. We wanted to use him. And now that he doesn't fit what we wanted, we have to let him go. And how off that seemed. There's something, whether you agree or disagree with him, there was something in that, the way that believers treated each other. It didn't sit well with me. And I look at our current political situation. And don't worry, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you who I'm voting for. I'm going to tell you you should vote. Um, But what I'm most concerned about is how people are treating each other just about on every level whether it's the candidates or their followers, the things that people are saying about each other and to each other are absolutely not okay. Recently read an article where uh, someone was saying they were watching one of the debates with their kids, and their third grader said, why do these grown-ups get to say things to each other that you say we shouldn't say to each other? Why do they get to behave badly? was their question, which I think is a great question. And I want you to hear me that I'm not talking about one side or the other. I'm talking about all of it. We have Christians saying things to one another because of who they do or do not support, calling into question their faith, and condemning one another. It's not okay. Our country is divided in so many ways already, economically, racially, politically, and others. And it seems as if the church is playing right along with them. Why aren't we leading the world to see something different? Why does it look like, if we have this passage that says we're not supposed to see anybody in a worldly way, right? And and we like to, we struggle with seeing people who don't believe the same things as we do. And so, so there's that. But why does the world look at us and see that we're not even treating each other well? 
Are we really just meat and bones? Is there something different? This passage in 2 Corinthians says that if we have been brought close to God, that we should be about the business of bringing people close to God. If we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, then we are to be part of God's work of reconciliation, God's work of making all things right. That's what we're supposed to do. It says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. There's this transformation that takes place. And part of this transformation deals with how we see other people, whether we're in the wilderness or not. We don't see them in a worldly way. But we see everyone, everyone, as people who are meant to be reconciled to God fellow human beings, fellow image bearers of God. What about my boss who treats me badly? Well, can't view them in a worldly way. What about the kid at school who no one likes and everyone teases? No, can't view them in a worldly way. And you can't view your friends who are participating in that in a worldly way. What about the politicians who lie and tweet things? Nope, can't see them or their followers in a worldly way. What about the person in my family who's stirring up all kinds of trouble? can't see them in a worldly way well what about this and what about that person and that person and you can fill in the blank what about whoever the answer is we cannot see anyone in a worldly way this doesn't mean you can't confront people doesn't mean you can't work to stop people who are making bad choices and choices that are hurting other people but the way we go about it and the way we do that has got to be different than the world And I think this is a point of growth for us both individually and as a church. This is a wilderness growth point. We need to see the people around us differently and be acting differently towards them. This transformation that is to take place in those who follow Jesus to be one that changes us from people who see people in a worldly way to people, and and it's not even just where we tolerate them. Okay, I'm going to let that, that's fine, that's fine. We are supposed to be actively loving and working for the reconciliation of everyone. And this is just part of what it means to follow God, that he's given us this ministry of reconciliation, that we're to be about the work that God is doing to reconcile all things to himself. We're supposed to participate in that, and not just as puppets that God sort of manipulates and controls, but as active living participants whose participation or lack of participation impacts the way that God moves and acts. We are given the title Christ's Ambassadors sent by God on his behalf as transformed people to do his work of reconciliation. And the great thing about this is the invitation is to lean into God, to remember God, to remember Christ as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit because God is the one who reconciles. God reconciled us. He met us. Other people were involved because they were participating in that work, but God was doing it. And now it's time for us to participate also. During this time of Lent, when we talk about springtime, the image of a germinating seed comes to mind. And it starts uh, in, in the way I'm thinking about it. It's a seed that starts down in the dirt, in the dark. And as it grows, it begins to change shape. And roots and tendrils and all kinds of things start to spread out in different directions. There's growth, and there's pressing through the dirt, and there's movement with this intention of getting a part of it to break through to the light. 
that's what we're doing. Our growth is meant to, to sort of grow us into Easter, into life and resurrection. And part of that growth is how we look at other people. And this passage says we don't do it in a worldly way. We see everyone as God sees them, not counting their sins against them, and instead being eager to forgive, eager to remove guilt and shame, and bring blessing and life. The two verses before the 16 through 21 passage, 14 and 15 in in 2 Corinthians say this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are compelled. There's something about being loved by God that moves us to see people differently. I want to take a few moments, and if some of you would be willing off that piece of paper where you started writing those questions, usually we have connection card questions, but I don't have those. They're just the same questions I asked before. Who is God, and, and who are you? But if there are a few of you who'd be willing to share some of the things you wrote down as, as you listen today, that would be fantastic. And if not, that's fantastic also. free from the world. That sounds awesome. Anything else? I'm going to invite the worship team up. If you have something to say, you can still say it. No worries. Um, So we'll pray and then we'll move on into one last song. Dear God, I give you great thanks for this time. Lord, I give you great thanks for the the word of being free from the world. And there's something about that. There's there's sort of a game that feels like we have to play um, in order to fit or in order, and it seems like it can trap us. I'm so thankful for the freedom from that. I pray in that freedom we would choose to see people in the way that you do. I pray that we would choose to love people instead of hate people. I, I pray that the people who annoy us and the people that we have a difficult time getting along with, we would suddenly find our heart growing to a space where we are compelled by your love to be able to love them. I pray for our families, how we interact with one another there. I pray for our neighborhoods, our workplaces, all the places where we are around other people. And I pray that we would be showing the world something different. We'd be showing the world what it means to look at people with love and compassion and care and kindness and gentleness and all those things. And I pray, God, that you would um, help us be done with disunity, division, Help us to disagree in ways that are actually helpful um, and help us to move in ways that bring, uh, bring healing to our world. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.